Good morning. I love this little remnant today. Um, and I know many of you have really busy Tuesday, Thursday class schedules, so thank you for making time for this. We did talk about our resilient faith yesterday and hopefully lay some groundwork. And today I want to dive into how a resilient faith that has a newness of hope, to borrow the phrase from Miroslav Volf, um, a hope not born of our own optimism, our own agency, um, but born of our, our resting in what God is doing in our own hearts and in the world, how that can move us. And today I want to talk about how it can move us into building resilient communities. Not my stories, other people's stories. Um, in America, you have to lay a little groundwork and begin a discussion with um, why community? Because individualism is in our DNA. And um, choices I make in life often are my choices, my life, my future. I've been listening to some of you these last 24 hours. And, you're, and many of you, it's, it's kind of uppermost that you don't know what you'll be doing next year or in two years after, after your time at Covenant. And so I think that for all of us, we have to first break down sort of our American privilege, if you will, that we're very individualistic people. And yet we often can quickly find ourselves at the end of our individual abilities. So I have a little story that all the people who didn't come are gonna be sad they missed because it's a little insight into um, a little, some reporter secrets. And in this case, it is the secret of how you get across the border into Syria. I've been thinking about it in recent weeks as kind of a metaphor in my life, and I think it will apply to what we're talking about today. So there's still a war on in Syria, and the Syrian government controls about two-thirds of the country. And if you're a journalist and someone like me or many journalists who covered this conflict for so long, you can't really go in through the government options because you have to have government approval and the Saad regime is very aware of how, how journalists have been critical or broken apart, um, how the Assad government has used barrel bombs and chemical weapons attacks. And so it's very hard to get that kind of official government position. So then you're left with two choices. The one third part of the country that is not in government control is either in the control of the terrorist groups or it's in control of a group called the YPG, which is a Kurdish, Christian, Arab, military and governmental entity. Got it? And so you can imagine which one is the preferable choice. And going in through that YPG entity, uh, there's one spot. And it is a tiny border car crossing from Iraq, which is on the eastern border of Syria, northeast Syria, from Iraq into uh, Syria. And it requires crossing the Kaaba River on a pontoon bridge that, was, that sits floating on the Kaaba River and was put in by the US military. So this means flying to Iraq, hiring a driver, going nearly two hours up to this very remote border outpost, waiting on the Iraqi side for permission to exit, which means your passport is reviewed. You have to fill out paperwork for that. 
and, your pa and that paperwork has to be approved. Looking across the river, getting a little nervous, having to step away from my driver and my translator because they can't go beyond the checkpoint, so I'm all alone. And then getting in a little bus, and on that bus are usually mostly Syrian mothers and children, and the mothers are always crying. They're leaving somebody behind, or they're afraid. They're going back to Syria, and they maybe haven't been back there in years, and they maybe don't know what they're going to find there, if their home is still standing, or what's happening there. So they're afraid, and there's just this whimpering, steady crying as you're going across. You can't take pictures. You can't move out of your seat. It's just very, it's a very isolating experience, and you bounce across this pontoon bridge, and then you come up, and then you go through those same checkpoints again, and you um, pass through the border control. It's very interesting because the second time I, I did it twice in 2019, and the second time I did it, they recognized me because there's so few American journalists and so few women journalists who come through. And so we kind of went through the whole routine very quickly. And then there you are, you're in Syria. And then you have to think about how to get to the town where you're staying and all of those things. So it can be a little bit scary, it can be a little bit unnerving. It's an ordeal and it feels like very much like an ordeal that we do alone. But this is actually only the surface reality in what is something of a dangerous situation because to get to the border and to the, on the Iraqi side, I have been in touch with a trusted church contact in Iraq who has arranged for my driver and my translator. And I have never had someone under this situation who didn't take my safety absolutely seriously and who waited as I went through the checkpoints on the Iraqi side to be sure I got through. And if I was there alone for a long time, I would get a text from him. Are you all right? Is it okay? And then even as I'm getting in the bus and heading down onto that bouncy pontoon bridge, the person waiting for me on the other side is texting me. Are you coming? I'm here for you. Those are the kinds of texts I get. And it might even be someone who doesn't know, that might be all the English they know. Um, or they may be someone who speaks, but, but they're not someone I've met. They're someone I'm trusting through other people who have introduced me to them. And when I get over there, there they will be. And one time, it took two hours to get across the bridge because an 18-wheeler got stuck in the middle of the bridge with the wheels on the upside and, and the back wheels on the flat side. And, and it was a cr incredible. It took like a crane to get them off the bridge. And the person on the other side waited for me that whole time. And when I got there, it was hot. Um, he, he gets out of the car, he says hello, and he hands me a bottle of water. So this is what community looks like in a very metaphorical sense. And I want to give that to you as a picture, not just some little journalist tips, but as a picture, because even in the worst situations, even in the, the little hassles of life like a rickety pontoon bridge or the big hassles like the life and death threats that truly await in a place like Syria, Will a bomb go off at the border station? Will a bomb go off on the road? Um, and I've actually been in some of those situations, so I know that the life and death 
possibilities are real. But in those situations, can we think about the community that is underneath us? These are the everlasting arms of Jesus. This is how the body of Christ surrounds and comes beneath us. And so we aren't even alone, even when we think we are. And I really want to say that to you because I know that when you launch out from college, you feel very alone, don't you? Sometimes for the first time in your life, you feel like you do have to make big decisions and you can no longer, your parents aren't necessarily telling you and your community is going in different directions. It can be very disorienting. So I want us today to think together about the resilient communities that already are around us and about how we build them. And to do that, let's talk first about where we are before I, I launch into that a little bit more. I wanna talk about some of the communities I've had the privilege of being close to and reporting from. Let's talk about where we are in the United States. As I observe it, there's been so much tearing down, so much division, even within the churches, and, and a lot less welcoming in. Our witness in America has been as much about division in the church as it has been about embrace and welcome. And if I can just put it more bluntly, how will we, how will you, how will I resolve to be part of communities that don't howl at a pandemic? that don't break down when there's economic catastrophe and that don't, or I should say that become known more for their faith than their fury. We, we have our individualistic ways in the United States that insulate us and we, and we have them all day long. We don't even notice them, how we're insulated and we're distracted from some of the hardships of life. And then we have a short fuse. We're impatient. I feel it in my own heart. And I think that there are things that we have to do battle. We may not have to do battle with border crossings and, and with bombs going off in our streets, but we have to do battle in other ways as well. Have you ever been in a hurricane-proof house? Just to jump tracks here a little bit. I was able to go in one, one time. It's, it's a pretty amazing thing. First of all, a hurricane-proof house, this one was on the coast uh, in South Carolina. Hurricane-proof house will tend to have rounded corners instead of straight edge corners. It will tend to be built of um, a solid like reinforced plaster, a solid surface rather than timbers or rather than bricks or stones that can crumble and come apart. And then when you go on the inside of it, you'll see to the rounded corners of the rooms, but you'll have windows, beautiful windows in this house that were looking out on the water and the water wasn't far away. But inside the windows are these steel hurricane shades and they're, they're very James Bond-ish. They rattle when they go up and when they go down. And, and, but when they come down, it's amazing because they are the solid steel reinforcement behind the glass. If the glass breaks, the glass doesn't come into the room. And really it helps resist the glass breaking because it's so solid. And what it does is it creates a solid wall of resistance. The whole house 
become, you know, from the, the plaster across the windows, suddenly you have a solid wall of resistance. And that wall of resistance is what we create in resilient communities. When we stand together, then we create a wall of resistance to the traumas, the pandemics, the hurricanes, the storms of life that are truly coming at us. We can resist the high winds and the tidal waves, if you will. So when we are able to do this and to withstand things coming at us in life, they're, they're too, I mean, simply to withstand something is to stand with, to stand with others to stand alongside, to, to stand against something. And that's, let's, so let's think of it as two meanings. To remain standing when outside forces are pushing us down, and at the same time, to put up resistance that is strong enough. So there has to be some push back in order to stand. So one is about resolve, and the other is about readiness. And you don't have resolve or readiness on the day that the storm hits. You have to have built it before. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. And so I want to come to a place of talking to you about two church communities that I believe have shown, not perfectly, ever, but have really shown an incredible amount of resolve and readiness in the face of incredible assaults upon them. And one is, the, one is the church in Iraq, and one is the church in Afghanistan. And I think it's important to look at them because both of them are in the news. Both of them, we all know, have endured decades of U.S.-led wars that we lost. And both of them continue to face assaults of many, many, many different kinds. We in the United States are tempted to lump these countries together because we fought these wars simultaneously. But the two communities are actually quite a bit different. And so just bear with me with just a little bit of illustration of how they're different. So Afghanistan on your map, you know, people will say it's in the Middle East. It's not in the Middle East. Afghan the Middle East is from Israel over across to maybe Iraq, through Syria, Lebanon. Those are the countries in the Middle East. Afghanistan is up against the stands. It's in an area that was long dominated by the Soviet Union during the communist era in that part of the world. It's, it's up against and surrounded and includes the Hindu Kush mountains, these incredible, incredible uh, chains of high, high snow-capped peaks. So it's a forbidden, it's a landlocked country. It's very different than Iraq. Iraq is a flat country for the most part. Iraq is a desert country. Iraq is an Arab-dominated country. Um, people in Iraq look not so much different from people you might meet in Saudi Arabia, while people in Afghanistan in some ways will resemble people you might meet in China or in Mongolia, as well as people who look a little bit more Middle Eastern. And, so th and their histories are very different. The church in Iraq has ancient roots. I alluded to this a little bit yesterday. I've walked through the ruins of churches that archaeologists estimate were built in the early 200s. We know that there were bishops. The church was organized and populated enough by the fourth century that there were bishops, who, um, two bishops from Mesopotamia, who attended the council at Nicaea. And what you see when you go in the ancient churches in Iraq today is that 
they're kind of an anomaly. They had enough divisions from the church, the Eastern church, the old church that was based in Constantinople that they never really aligned with it. And then because of that, they never really aligned with the Western church. The Chaldean church, for instance, in Iraq, never became part of, of the Roman church, never came under sort of the Catholic uh, seat at, at the Vatican in Rome until the 1990s. And in that isolation, what happened, what I began observing and discovering as I began going back year after year after year, starting with the Iraq War, is that these churches had continued operating as they always had. The liturgy was the same as the liturgy from the two, three, and four hundreds. The language was often Aramaic or Syriac, a splinter of Aramaic. You know, the language of Jesus. They hadn't stopped doing that. They were still, when they baptize their children, they do it with the community surrounding them. And they put the babies down. You know, the babies would have these beautiful things on, but they would strip them and put them down in these founts, fonts, I should say, at the back of the church and then lift them up high and the women would chant and they would break out into songs. And something that you would see hundreds of years ago. And so that is the church in Iraq. The church in Afghanistan has none of those ancient roots. It is an Islamic-dominated country. It is a closed country. It is a country that still runs on tribal customs, tribal rule. When the Taliban began taking over Afghanistan, which started early this year, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when the Taliban started taking over the country, they were very smart. They started with the outward provinces and the, and the rural areas, but they started with some very strategic ones because they knew something the United States had lost sight of, and that is that power, even though the, the cities in Afghanistan, Kabul and Herat and Mazar-Sharif, the major cities, Islamabad, even though those, those cities had grown during the American-led war, and there was this cosmopolitan thing going on there and some real freedoms that were, that were taking root there, they knew that the power structure was still in the outlying provinces, in the rural areas where the tribes actually maintain control of Afghanistan. So very different, not an oil-rich country, not a lot of resources. But the church in Afghanistan is basically a missional church. It has been a church that has grown up in various waves. Christy Wilson was one of the main missionaries in Afghanistan who brought in a, a lot of, of sort of awakening and conversion. But these were Muslims converting to Christ. And so when you go in to the Afghan church today, as I did starting in about 2010, you are talking about a church that is full of Muslim converts. Um, all the ones I met had converted from Islam. Many of them, as a result, had lost their ties with their family. Some of them had lost their jobs. And many of them were forced to, to practice their Christianity in underground networks. So in each of these areas, what we saw as things got tough is how you can build resilience in two very different settings. In Iraq, when, the, when ISIS came in in 2014 and moved into Nineveh Plain, they were taking over the communities where the ancient church had had its roots, the, the churches that go back to the two and three hundreds I'm talking about. 
And the people in those communities had to flee north. And when they did that, which was truly an overnight process, the churches in the north, which were largely more Protestant evangelical churches, many of them, the churches in the north came down and met them. So remember those sedans that I talked about that were loaded with 15 people? They were met by evangelicals driving down in their cars to meet them and to help them. The reason that I know that some women who were in labor had C-sections and were and allowed to give birth to their babies quickly and stitched up and then sent on their way, the reason I know that is because someone I know in one of those churches went down to meet these people. And as they were coming out, this one woman literally is walking across the desert with a newborn baby in her arm and holding her stomach. And this person that I know in the north went down to meet her and said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not. I just had a C-section. And she said, come with me, we'll help you, and took her to a hospital in the north. This is how the community was coming together. And what grew out of that was truly beautiful because there had always been tension between the evangelical churches and the, and the ancient churches. And suddenly, in this sea of displacement and hurt and need, there was a Chaldean priest who had hundreds of water bottles. And there was an Orthodox priest who had all kinds of mattresses. And there was an evangelical pastor who said, I've got a van. And they all came together and they went out to the villages where people were, some of them sleeping out on the ground, some of them sleeping in, in pews of churches where they had found refuge. And they went out and they found them and they took water and mattresses and clothes and things that they needed. And they began to come together and work. And the evangelical pastors, I know one in the city of Erbil in the north of Iraq, he had a large church all the offices, all the classrooms were given over to families from these ancient churches for months, months and months. And, they were con and, and, their, and their church mission was turned into how they could serve these displaced communities. And you know what's happened over time? Over time, many of those believers from the ancient communities have become members of these evangelical churches. I was sat in on a Bible stu study where a woman said, she, she broke down weeping in the middle of the Bible study, and she was one of the displaced women. And she said, I've never spent hours reading my Bible, and I'm almost thankful that I've lost everything else because now I'm sitting with these people, these new friends, and I can read my Bible. This was how, how they were building communities together. The other thing is that as this was happening and people were watching it, I, I actually have walked into church services in Erbil where on the doorstep were sitting Muslim families asking if they could come in. They were seeing how people were meeting the needs of one another and they wanted to be part of it. And there have been a number of conversions. These are the things we don't hear on CNN and Fox News when we talk about these, the wars that we've been involved in. And likewise, in Afghanistan, a church that I would say is much more, and right now today, under threat, but very different in how it's organized. This is a church that is underground, and this is a church that has had to rely, you know, how do you build community when you're operating in cells and you have to hide your worship and hide your services and things like that? 
Well, one of the ways you do it is through the internet. And there was a young man that I met about 10 years ago. He was a university student, and he had become just an ardent believer, and he was leading Bible studies and leading classes, and he helped me to meet a lot of other um, Christians in, in Afghanistan. And I asked him one day, I said, how, how did you become a believer? And he said, I was working with an American aid worker and noticing the difference between his life and mine and learning that he was a Christian. And one night at my computer, I Googled Afghan Christian and up came a chat room that was based in the UK of diaspora Afghan believers. And they began discipling him over the internet. And even now, today, there are Afghan church leaders in India, in London, in Memphis, in California, who are day by day, on a daily basis, discipling the underground church in Afghanistan. And so when the Taliban took over, when people were forced to get out of the country and began to and forced to have real fears for their life. And the threats are real. I talked to a group this week who've been in a safe house and people in the safe house have been dragged out and beaten in the street by the Taliban. Um, and so they are in groups and many of them are in safe houses. I talked to a group where uh, working with Americans, working with this diaspora, they were able to get 68 of them out over land one night, 22 out by plane another time a week or two ago, and off to one of the Gulf countries where we have a U.S. military base. This is what these people are going through even now, but they have built prior to now their resilient communities. They're allowing them to stay together even when things are life and death difficult. One of, the, um, one of the things that you find in these situations is, is also how people learn to make the most out of a situation, even to, I would say, make merry in these situations. There, were, there was a group of, um, of Afghan Christians that, was, that found themselves, they had to find a place to stay. And they were out of all the main cities waiting hopefully for a flight out of the country, they ended up finding a wedding hall that had been closed. And they were staying there for a time. And um, while they were there, the Taliban showed up outside and they had to come up with something to keep them safe and some story. And so on the spot, they decided to pretend that they were having a wedding. And they actually invited the Taliban in to join them in dancing while they pretended that they were doing a wedding. These are the kinds of things that we, that we also can build into our own resilient communities. All of this happening, all of the things that were happening in, in Iraq. So think about these crews of believers going out into these decimated communities and taking mattresses and water bottles. ISIS is not far away. The threats are still there, but they're continuing to find ways to minister to one another in the midst of it. And then, of course, much easier to see in Afghanistan. The Taliban is right on the street. The Taliban could show up at any moment. 
but they're all there together finding ways, creating this wall of resistance that we think about, finding ways to, to welcome one another and support one another on their journeys. This is what we're doing too, and our ways look very different, and our circumstances, our situations look very different, but I think that there's a lot to learn from both situations. Stanley Hauerwas, in a really wonderful piece called A Community of Character, writes this, the Christian does not claim that the world is safe, but only that it is under God's lordship. Christian confidence in God's lordship provides the church with the power to exist amid the diversity of the world, trusting that the truth will out without resorting to coercion and violence. Remember from our talk yesterday how Miroslav Volf said this, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the conquest of suffering, he doesn't mean alleviation of suffering, he means resilience, to live victoriously in the midst of suffering. That kind of resilience lives its best life in a community of believers rather than inside our own heads though they may be connected only via the internet or they may be connected in, in very um, real-time intimate ways. These kinds of communities can survive when they're on the run and when they're in the midst of doing the mundane of life. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and thank you for allowing us glimpses into what you're doing in the world to the news that is beneath the headlines, to the communities that you are building in the midst of strife and danger and war. Would you please work in our own hearts and give us a zeal to build resilient communities in the midst of our own strife, in the midst of our own battles and our own challenges and our own decisions because we are weak and you are strong and we rest in your strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys.